You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey friends, it's Leslie Ann. So glad to have you here this week. This week in Bible Study, we covered 1 Samuel chapters 20 through 24. That is a lot of material, but it is the entire journey of David's first flight from Saul. And what we saw in these chapters is that even though David is on the run for his life, He still finds help, protects his people, and resists temptation. But Saul obsessively pursues him, terrorizes Israel, and indulges in sinful desires. This teaching corresponds with the information found on pages 109 to 120 in the Learner Workbook, available for download from thevillagechurch.net. You can find more information about our study in Brandon, Mississippi at leslieannjones.com slash king. When we left off last week, Saul was in a great position, right? He had moved from kind of trying to maybe kill David in a position where he might be killed in battle to outright blatantly trying to murder him. But despite his best laid plans, he failed every single time. And why did he fail? Because God was no longer with him, but God was with David. David had been handpicked by God to be his king. He was freshly anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to protect and deliver God's people from their worst enemies, giants and angry kings included. By the end of chapter 19, Saul is lying naked and in disgrace before the people, and David is scared to death. And that's where we pick up today. David has realized that Saul is out for murder, and he's running scared. He's running for his life. And even though that's the case, he's able to find help when he needs it. He's able to protect his people, and he's also able to resist the temptation to end it all when he gets the chance. But Saul cuts himself off from anyone who has even just like a tiny little sliver of common sense. Saul's like, nope, you're dead to me. Not listening to you. He obsessively pursues David. He terrorizes Israel. And he indulges selfish, sinful desires without a second thought. So I said this last week, and I'll say it again. I feel like I'm going to be continuing to say it every week. Fun times. These are the most fun passages in the Bible, right? But despite the bleak picture that's painted in these chapters, there is hope. Because no matter what happens, we see that the Lord consistently and faithfully protects his anointed king. And he brings the rebellious to ruin. And that's the theme that we see running all through these chapters. God is for David, 100% for David, but he is not for Saul. And that much is apparent. So let me just say, um, first of all, that I found it really difficult to outline these chapters because five chapters with so much activity going on is really hard to kind of try to make sense of and everything. So um, I'm usually the kind of person who rolls my eyes at alliteration. And so then I found myself doing it this week. But it was so hard for me to figure out a structure that worked that I decided to get over it and go with it. So feel free to roll your eyes at all of the P's that are up there. But it works, okay? Bear with me. Old school. No, I do not have three points in a poem, so we're not old school Southern Baptist here. I have four points, zero poems. <laughs> so we should be good to go. Okay, so first we see the plans and promises of David. Let's read chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. 
Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shouldn't, shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So you can almost feel David's desperation here, right? He runs to Jonathan, begging for an explanation, pleading his innocence. He said, what did I do? Why does your dad hate me so much? I did nothing except save you from the giant. I have done nothing to deserve this. He, but he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that Saul is trying to kill him. And he knows because of all the attempts that Saul made on his life in the previous chapters. But he doesn't know what to do about it. So he turns to Jonathan for help. But Jonathan doesn't want to believe that his father is capable of such a thing. As bad as Saul is, as much trouble as Saul has caused even Jonathan in his life, he doesn't want to believe that it's that bad. Because his father had promised him in 19.6 that he was not going to kill David, that he was relenting from the plans and he was not going to kill David. But David knows otherwise and he needs help. So they come up with a plan. In verses 4 through 7, they hatched this plan. At the beginning of every month, they celebrated the new moon with feasts and sacrifices. It was one of the festivals prescribed for the people of Israel in the books of Leviticus and Numbers. Okay, They did it every single month at the beginning of the month. That's what they were called to do. And David was a member of Saul's household. Remember, it told us that he took him from Jesse's house, from his father's house, and he was now in Saul's house. So he would have been expected to be there. But... Jonathan and David hatch a plan to test Saul. They want to see how he reacts if David doesn't show up. So instead of going to the feast, David hides somewhere safe, and Jonathan goes to kind of see Saul's reaction. The assumption is that if Saul doesn't notice or care that David's not there, then everything is fine. David has nothing to worry about. He was just imagining things. Everything's good. You're fine. But if he blows a gasket, then his intentions are less than honorable. But before they put the plan into motion, they renew the promises that they have made to one another. So in verse 8, this is what they say. This is David talking to Jonathan. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, wouldn't I tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety." So he's swearing. He's calling the Lord as his witness. I swear to God, basically, is what he is saying here, that I will tell you the truth. If he wants to kill you, I'll tell you. If he's okay with you, I'll tell you. I promise you can trust me. So this is what Jonathan is promising. If I'm still alive, verse 14, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So he knows that God is on David's side. 
because he's attributing David's vengeance to God. He's saying, God is going to cut off David's enemies. Save me from that fate. Don't let that happen to me. I am not your enemy. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, when Jonathan is swearing this covenant and he's talking about the Lord taking vengeance on David's enemies, he has to know that if his father turns out to be David's enemy, then his father's family is going to bear the wrath of the Lord. And that's why he is so fervent in expressing his loyalty and his commitment to David because he's saying, I am on your side, your side. I'm on the side of the Lord. Like, and God, as God is my witness... I am for you, David. So there's a couple of things to note here in this passage. Both David and Jonathan in this whole section from 8 to 17 are using covenant language. The word that David uses for deal kindly in verse 8 is hesed. And that's the same word that's translated steadfast love in 14 and 15. So this is one of those special Old Testament words. Like you hear in the New Testament about the agape love of God. Hesed is kind of, like if we were going to make a big deal out of a word in the Old Testament, it would be hesed. It is the word that God uses for his covenant people. And when it's used of God, it's used in the sense that God has set his love on people. It is unfailing, never giving up, always and forever, steadfast and unending. It's the love that God sets on his people. It has more to do with choosing and a choice. Like I will love you. I am going to love you. I will always love you no matter what, than it does about feeling and emotion, okay? So that's how the word is used when it's used of God. So for David and Jonathan to use that same word here demonstrates the depth of their commitment and loyalty to one another. They are appealing to a love that is deeper than feelings and that is rooted in the Lord and in God's identity. So they call upon God to be the witness of this covenant to be the one who makes sure that they hold up the ends of their bargains. And as they have both seen God doing throughout all of this, they know that God fights for his people. They have seen God enact justice in their lives. And so for Jonathan to say, God deal with me. If I don't do this to you, he's calling down judgment on himself. So this commitment that they have to each other, this covenant, this promise, it's not something wishy-washy. It's not like, oh, well, if I'm able to, then yeah, sure, I'll do that. It's not circumstantial, but it's the kind of promise that you keep no matter what. And it's highly unusual for a member of one royal family to make that kind of promise with someone who could be seen as a rival. Because how does the world work? Do you leave competitors standing? Not in this sort of situation, anyway. How are rivals to the throne treated? Do you let them gain traction? Do you let them gain power? That's not the way that the world works, right? Jonathan knows that according to the way of the world, when a new monarch takes the throne, the old royal family is completely wiped out. Why? Because they don't want to leave somebody standing who has legitimate claim to the throne. If you want to establish your right to rule, you have to wipe out everybody else's. But that's exactly the kind of promise that they make to each other. Jonathan says, hey, if I end up being king, I'm going to let you live. And David says, if I end up being king, I'm going to let you live. 
So they make this promise to each other, vowing to protect their rivals no matter what. And it's completely countercultural. It is not the way that the world works. It's upside down in its, in its way of working. And later, in 2 Samuel, we see David keep this word that he makes to Jonathan. When he is sitting on the throne, he says, has anybody left? And then he has Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, come and live with him and be a part of the royal household. He restores all of Saul's lands to him and lets him continue living and to live well. If we keep reading then in verses 18 through 23, this is where they decide on a sign, right? So they make this covenant, they agree to this plan, and Jonathan says, I'll come back and I'll give you a sign, let you know one way or the other so you know what to do. So verse 24, it's the night of the feast and David does not go. He hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, this king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. And Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. There are all sorts of reasons why David would have been ritually unclean. You know, everything from like, I don't know, going hunting and touching a dead animal, something like that would have made him unfit to be at the meal. And so most of those instances of uncleanness, according to the purification laws in the Old Testament, you were only unclean for like, one night and then the next day you were okay again um so he fully expects david to be there the next day because by now he'll be clean there's no reason for him not to be here but on the second day the day after the new moon david's place was empty and saul said to jonathan his son why has not the son of jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today jonathan answered saul david earnestly asked leave of me to go to bethlehem He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, I cannot read this without laughing, y'all. Like, I just really want to say you SOB. Like, that is how I read it. Mine says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's not funny. But, like, that's what I hear in my head is our modern version of that same word, wording. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die to Okay, so how does Saul react? How would you describe his reaction? Is he indifferent? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not indifferent at all. He is quite angry. He is furious, right? Why? What makes him so mad? What's he worried about? He's worried about his throne, what it means for Jonathan. He's worried about Jonathan's throne. And it's interesting to me that he's so worried about Jonathan taking the throne, and then two seconds later, he's hurling a spear at him, right? He's like, you're not going to get to be king. <laughs> I mean, like, he is just beyond reason. He's so angry. So Jonathan, this makes it clear. Not only has Jonathan, like, chosen David's side secretly in their private meetings out in the field, but now he is publicly in front of everybody at the feast saying, what's going on here? He's choosing David over his father in front of everybody. And that doesn't look real good. that'll, That'll hurt a king's reputation, I think. So, verse 32, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. Somebody needs to take the spear away. I mean, I'm just saying. (laughs) 
Like, but yeah, he's not good with it, and he's prone to throwing it. So we need to we need to just remove it from the situation. Yeah. Well, he kept throwing it at David. Now he's throwing it at Jonathan. So he throws the spear at Jonathan, but he also does not hit Jonathan. And Jonathan is angry back. Jonathan rises from the table in fierce anger. He ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So Saul is just beyond reason. He's furious. He's like publicly showing his crazy. Like it's one of those things where a lot of times your family knows you're crazy, but you don't show your crazy to He is showing his crazy to the world. Like there's no hiding it. He's losing his mind in front of everybody. So can you imagine being a part of that feast, like sitting at the table? I mean, how do you react to a king who acts like a madman? Because anybody who opposes Saul does so at the risk of their life. He is not open to reason at this point. So in verses 35 through 40, Jonathan goes out to the field the next morning to warn David, just like they had agreed. And you can see again their commitment to this covenant that they have made with each other in verses 41 through 42. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. Now, when we're talking about David weeping here, I think about how David must have felt in that moment. You know, he has left his own father's home. He's been part of Saul's. And he found favor there for a while. And he really has done nothing wrong. He has done nothing but fight Saul's battles for him. And do the hard things that Saul didn't want to do. And he's getting nothing good for it in return. And I don't think this is the main point of this week's passage or anything, but I just want to say that for us, sometimes I think when God has called us to something or we feel as if the Lord is leading us to do something, then we expect it to be easy, right? God has called me to do this. All the doors are going to flake wide open and I'm going to waltz right through them and I'm going to have success and everything's going to be great. It's going to be perfect. And that is not the way it goes for David. He is following the call of the Lord's will on his life. He is doing all the right things in the way that the Lord has set before him and all it gets him is trouble. And so I think it's just a reminder to us that the way of the Lord is not always the easy way. And sometimes you can be right exactly in the middle of the Lord's will facing the hardest moments of your life. Not because you somehow missed the right way to go, not because you misread the signs somewhere or that you're outside God's will, but because sometimes when we are right where God needs us to be, that's where the enemy fights hardest against us. Because when we are where we need to be, when we are following the Lord and doing his will, doing his work in the world, that's when we are most dangerous to the enemy. All of that to say... When difficulties come, don't immediately write it off as the sign that, oh, I made the wrong choice. I did the wrong thing. I should stop doing this. This isn't working because that might not be the case. Maybe you're exactly where you need to be for that moment 
for that purpose. And maybe God is doing something that, that you don't know yet. You know, you, you, there's so many stories that we can't understand except in hindsight. When you look back, you can see the way that the Lord was working the whole time. Just like we can stand here and we can look at David's story and we can say God was with him. God is protecting him. But when David was in that moment, he must have felt awfully alone and awfully scared. The king was trying to kill him. And so he's running scared. He's running for his life and he's desperate. And I think that's where it leads us to in the second section in verse, in verse, in chapter 21, when he goes to the priest, he is completely undone by the confirmation of his worst fears, right? Like he was afraid, like he knew Saul was against him. He was afraid that this was going to happen, but now he knows, he knows because Saul has very publicly made it clear to everyone that he is against David. So he's desperate and afraid, and he runs to the priest for help. And in this section, chapter 21 and the very beginning of 22, we see the Lord providing provision, the Lord giving David provision, and then protection as well. Let's read verses 1 through 2. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone? And no one with you. So apparently David usually travels with an entourage. And none of them are with him. Because they're back with Saul. He's alone. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. He's saying they're going to meet up with, they're meeting up with me later. I'm by myself, but I'm meeting with them. Because Saul sent me on this business. And so we need to talk about this for a minute because this is a lie. It is um, blatant and outright. Like last chapter, he and Jonathan were a little deceptive. And they're a little trick that they played on Saul to kind of test the waters with him. But this is an outright lie. I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. The Old Testament narratives, the stories in the Old Testament, they're pretty much, I mean, like they just tell you what happens. They don't pass judgment or make commentary on David lied and he should not have lied that it, it doesn't tell us that okay but later on we're going to see David take responsibility for this and so he knows he has done wrong and he knows the consequences for it so there is that um, but second we don't know David's motives because it doesn't tell us that so we can speculate um, that maybe he lied to protect them so that if Saul ever found them out, if Saul ever questioned them, they would have an out. So that's one possibility, that maybe David lied to protect them in a way. But I think we also have to consider that maybe David was just human and scared. Really, really scared. And I think that's one of the things that we see here, that David was human, right? Despite all the wonderful and amazing things that he did for the people of Israel, he was still just a man. And as a man, he had weaknesses. And in this moment, he was very, very afraid. And sometimes, or maybe it's just me, when we're afraid, we do stupid things. But this choice, whatever the reason, we don't know why, we can speculate, it's going to have dire consequences. And even though... David feels alone here. Um, I think it's also important to note that God was still gracious to David in this moment because he gives David what he needs and provides for those immediate needs, even though David has done something wrong. God is still faithful to him. So in verses 3 through 6, 
The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is, ho- on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept, them, kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an ex- expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Okay, so what's going on here is that the bread of the presence, where there was one loaf for every tribe of Israel, and it was put out before the Ark of the Covenant every day. It was a food offering for the Lord. But it wasn't like taken away and then thrown away every day. It was food for the priests. So the priests were the ones who were supposed to eat the bread of the presence. But because it was holy and sacred and consecrated, it was not meant for like regular people to eat just because they're hungry. And so what you see is Ahimelech bending the rules a little bit. Because he's like, well, I mean, as long as you're clean. As long as you're not unclean, as long as you haven't done anything to make you unclean, then you can have this bread. And so he's helping David. He's deciding that helping this upright servant of the king and showing him mercy is more important than following the letter of the law. And you see later on in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus commends him for this choice. And he says that something greater was at play. Ahimelech gives David the bread. And then you get this verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So that ought to send off some alarm bells, right? It's like ding, 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 something's going to happen here. This is not a good thing to read. So in verses 8 through 9, David has the food. Then there's this guy that you know is it's not good that he is there. And then in verses 8 through 9, he acquires Goliath's sword, which just happens to be there in Nob with the priests, because why not? That's as good a place to keep it as any, right? Oh, it's back there behind the Ark of the Covenant. Just go grab that. Take it with you when you go. So that's what David's, David does. Um, when you get into the next chapter, in chapter 21, um, well, not next chapter, the next section there, in 21 verse 10, David leaves there because he's still on the run with Goliath's sword in hand. And for some reason, he chooses to go to Goliath's hometown. Now, why you would do that, I don't know. I don't have some like special insight there for you. I don't know why he would choose to go there. But he's quickly recognized, not just as an Israelite, not just as the guy who killed Goliath, but he's recognized as king. Is this not the king of Israel? And so David finds out what they're saying, he hears that he's been discovered, and so he plays the fool, literally, so that Achish the king won't realize who he is. And this is another one of those cases where David does something that's a little maybe deceptive, and yet no commentary here on it. He gets away. He flees. He is protected from Achish, and he flees again, this time to the cave of Adullam. So in 22 verses 1 through 2, David departed from there, talking about Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So what type of people are attracted to David at this point in the story? The desperate, the downtrodden, the outcast. They're a motley crew, right? You get the outcast of Israel, 
Woohoo! <laughs> Look at these fine, upstanding examples of society who are gathering here. No, it was not that. It was not that at all. They come to David because they are scared and in danger for some reason. Like his brothers and his family are in danger, right? Saul's out to kill David, but he's also out to kill his family. And so they're coming seeking protection and shelter because they know that where David is, there is safety. Why? Because God is with David. He's there with him. Wherever David is, there is also the presence of the Lord, and it is safe there. The presence of the Lord is a safe place to be. But it's not just these outcasts who receive David's protection. He goes out of his way, we see in the following verses, traveling to Moab, literally across the country, to find his parents a safe place to be. And they are given shelter there because, as you saw in your homework, because of their heritage. Because who is David's great-grandmother? Ruth. And where is Ruth from? Ruth the Moabitess. <laughs> She's from Moab. And so they are given shelter there because they have a connection. But David goes out of his way to make sure that they're kept safe. He could have said, hey, head on over to Moab. I bet they'll put you up. Have a safe journey. But he doesn't. He goes with them all the way to Moab. So then he goes go from Moab to the stronghold. That's in verse 4. And we're not exactly sure where the stronghold is. But most scholars think that it's on the western side of the Dead Sea. Look closely then at verse 5. Who comes to him there while he's in the stronghold? A prophet. A prophet. Gad said to David, Don't stay here in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. It's interesting here that at the prompting of a prophet, David leaves the stronghold. And it's just another way that God is providing for David here. He gives him a prophet to direct his steps and show him the way that he should go. And Gad ends up staying with David. He becomes one of the chroniclers of David's reign. Not only that, but he lives on long enough to see the temple completed. So he lives through David's reign and on into Solomon's when the temple is built. And he participates in worship there. So then we move into this third section, this super fun section about the priests. In chapter 22, verses 6 through 23, the priests and prophecy. So this is one of the bloodiest and grisliest scenes in the Bible. It's brutal. It's gory. It's tragic, horrific. And it starts with Saul and his spear again, <laughs> hanging out under a tree, being all paranoid and bent out of shape. He throws a fit in front of the people. You can listen to what he says in verses 7 through 8. Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Not that, that all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So let's talk about, first of all, how Saul's a little delusional here. Because David is not lying in wait for him. No, Saul is lying in wait for David. It's the other way around. So he's twisting the situation to make it seem like he's in the right. And he's saying, hey, somebody tell me something here. I know you know something. You've all been here. Why aren't you even telling me what's going on? And nobody speaks up. None of the Israelites do anyway. So it's clear the person who does speak up is a foreigner. Doeg the Edomite. He's happy to oblige Saul. 
verses 9 through 10. Let's listen to the details of what he said. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So let's talk about the things that he leaves out. Does he talk about Ahimelech trembling before David? About how worried he was about the situation? Did he talk about Ahimelech's questioning of David? Why are you here by yourself? What's going on, David? No. He doesn't mention any of that, and he throws the priest under the bus. He's like, hey, I know somebody saw these people. You need to get them. So Saul calls the priest before him and questions them. Hey, why have you helped David? My enemy, he has risen against me. He's not talking about Israel's enemy. He's not talking about any of this thing. He's worried about his own self. Verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Notice how close, though, Ahimelech's words are to Jonathan's back a couple chapters ago. Jonathan's like, what has David done? David hasn't done anything. And Ahimelech says the same thing. He's like, why shouldn't I help him? Isn't he your son-in-law? Isn't he your servant? Why shouldn't I have helped him? Like, I missed something here, Saul. Catch me up. What's going on? And, and Saul responds to the priests in the same way that he does to Jonathan. Here he is again with his, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Y'all, I am so proud of them. Because that could not have been easy. To take a stand like that against Saul after witnessing all his crazy. And they would not do it. They, for all the faithlessness that Israel has shown us in 1 Samuel, for them to be faithful in this moment speaks volumes. They take a stand. They say, nope, that's a line drawn. It's all too far, too far. Will not kill the priests. But unfortunately, someone else is willing. The king said to Doeg, the Edomite, you turn and strike the priests. And so Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox donkey and sheep he put to the sword does anyone remember what Saul was ordered to do in chapter 15 to Israel's actual enemy hey Saul you are to destroy man and woman infant and child ox and sheep the language is almost exactly the same of what Saul was ordered to do and refused to do for the Lord when it was Israel's actual enemies. But he's treating the people of Israel as if they are enemies instead of his own people. Saul orders the complete destruction of the priestly city, and he sees it through. He does to his own people what he was supposed to do to the Amalekites. When it was God's orders, he wouldn't do it. But this time, it's something that he wants to do for his own selfish gain. 
and he makes sure that it happens. He treats the priests as if they're the worst kind of enemies, and it's a sign of how truly far gone he is. He is completely nuts. A madman on the throne who is beyond control. He annihilates anyone and anything who stands in his way, even the anointed priests of the Lord. But, y'all, even in his rebellion, even in this, in this terrible, awful, horrible, inexcusable thing that he does, he's only fulfilling the word of the Lord. It doesn't make it okay. He will still face the consequences of his actions. So it's not okay. But as terrible as it is, none of it comes as a surprise to the Lord. He knew that this would happen, and so did the priests. It probably wasn't much of a surprise to them. So let's take a minute to remember way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel what happened. It's not going to make everything okay. It's not going to make the passage like sit comfortably with you. It's not going to suddenly become your favorite Bible story. But it does help a little bit, I think. So back in the beginning of our story, when we started in the fall, Eli and his corrupt sons, do you all remember his names? Hophni and Phinehas were running the priesthood into the ground. Eli was the high king. Hophni and Phinehas' sons were doing all sorts of wrong things. They were taking advantage of vulnerable women. They were abusing the sacrifices of the Lord. They were just ruling the roost in all sorts of wrong ways. So in chapter 2, a prophet came and delivered this terrible message to them. And the message is, you're going down, Eli. You and your sons are going to die. That's going to be the sign. But not only that, he is going to wipe out the entire family. These are the exact words. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared. Why? To weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. That's a tough word against the priests. So they had probably been living in fear for a while, for decades. Because remember, that was when Samuel was still a boy. And Samuel is old now. His sons have grown up. Samuel, he's going to die, by the way, spoiler alert, And 25 verse 1. So that's the first verse you're going to read next week as Samuel dies. Okay, so Samuel is an old man now. This decades have passed. They have had plenty of time to be afraid of this prophecy. Waiting for the other shoe to drop this whole time because the sign that this word was going to be fulfilled was that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli would die. And that happened a long time ago. So they've been waiting. But y'all, I think it's important to take note that in the meantime, they continued to serve God. So you saw one of them trying to help Saul with the ephod before battle. But Saul's like, I don't have time for that. I can't consult the Lord right now. And then you see them here still doing the daily sacrifices, apparently, because they had the bread of the presence all laid out in front of the ark. So they were still doing their jobs. And I find it reassuring in a way, because at the beginning of Samuel, the priesthood is entirely corrupt. But that's not what's happening here. This generation of priests acts honorably in a way that Jesus later approves, and they're martyred for it. 
The text does not comment on it. It doesn't say anything about it. But I can't help but think that in the end, there's a little bit of redemption. Because this priesthood is not the same as the one at the beginning of the story. Now, they still have to face the terrible, horrible consequences. But in the end, they made the right choice, even though it cost them everything. And here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. Bad things happen to God's people in the Bible. Sometimes God is the one who does the punishing, but he always preserves a faithful remnant. And he does the same thing here. One of the priests gets away. And where does he go? Straight to David. (laughs) Verse 20. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And what does David do? And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. He bears that burden. He takes that responsibility. And I think maybe this is why David finds grace from the Lord when he makes mistakes and Saul does not. Because Saul can never, ever bring himself to admit when he is wrong. And David sees what happens and he knows that he played a part in it. And he feels remorse and he does what he can to make things right. He offers Abiathar protection. Listen to his words, verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me, you shall be in safekeeping. So Abiathar finds safety with David. But I think it's also important to note here that David now has a prophet and he has a priest. If you know anything about the Old Testament, there are three offices for the people of Israel. What are they? Prophet, priest, and king. And they are all three together now. And the Lord is going to see them through. Because you know what happens to Abiathar? He stays with David for the rest of his life. He's with David through David's entire reign. Now, I mean, Solomon gets mad at him and (laughs) kicks him out after a while. But he stays with David because David protected him and gave him safety and did the things that the king is supposed to do. Okay, y'all, we're going to run through these next two chapters where Saul relentlessly pursues David. But David shows patience. So we've got pursuit and patience in chapters 23 and 24. I am not going to read all of this. But in chapter 23, David hears about this Philistine raid on the city of Keilah. And he races to their rescue. He offers them salvation. He delivers them from their enemies. He saves them. But then Saul hears about it. And he plans to come and set siege on the city of Keilah because they're harboring David. But there's a couple of important things to note here. Before David does anything, what does he do? It says in verse 2, 23-2, David inquired of the Lord. He sought the Lord's guidance. He did it twice before he went, and he did it again while he was there. After he had victory, he and Abiathar did the thing with the umim and the thumim, with the ephod and all that where they ask the Lord a question and the Lord answers and they, they get a response that he has a communication with the Lord. And so he has that and he uses it three times in the verses. And in doing so, he protects not just the people of Keilah. So he saves the people of Keilah from the Philistines, but he also saves his men of which he now has 600 from Saul's wrath. So 
in seeking the Lord's direction, he's able to save one group of people and then save another as they run away. And he saves the people of Keilah really twice, once from the Philistines and once from Saul. Because when Saul comes to the city, it says in verse 10, when David is asking God, what's going to happen here? What is he going to do? He said, I have heard that surely Saul seeks to come to Keilah. Why? To destroy the city on my account. Okay, so here's the other thing that's of note. Saul has turned against the priests and he is now plotting to set siege on Keilah and is officially acting like an enemy of Israel. He's not just the crazy king anymore. He's actually attacking his own people. He's waging war with them, not the actual enemy. In fact, when the actual enemy, he's so busy waging this imaginary war with David that when his actual enemies invade, he does nothing. He doesn't respond. He doesn't come until he gets a chance to attack David, right? He's so completely obsessed with it that nothing else matters to him, not the people he's supposed to protect, not the will of the Lord, nothing. Anyone who opposes them does so at the risk of their life, which is what we talked about earlier. And so it's no surprise that the people of Keilah, they didn't actually get a chance to do it because David sought the Lord's direction first and said, hey, will they turn me into Saul? And God said, yep, they'll for sure turn you in. And so David was like, peace out, we're gone. But they would have, and you can't blame them because it would have been the destruction of their whole city. Saul has already destroyed one city in Israel, and he's about to do another one. But despite all of that, David continues to do what the king ought to do. He protects the weak, he defends cities, and saves the people. But Saul only rages against them. Okay, so in verses 15 through 18, then, David's on the run again because Saul has chased him out of Keilah. David um, is in the wilderness of Ziph this time, and Jonathan comes to him. It says, Jonathan came and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Y'all, this is just such a sweet moment, I think, because David had to have been discouraged. But can you imagine what David must have felt like? And Jonathan comes to him and encourages him in these moments and points him back to the Lord. Y'all, we should be that kind of friend, one who meets our friends in their distress and says, hey, God is faithful. He has not forgotten you. He knows where you are. He knows what you are going through. And he is with you. He is with you to the end. And this is not the end. It's not the end. So Jonathan lifts him up and um, reminds him again of the covenant, tells him that he's on his side. I'm here with you, David. I'm with you. And David assures Jonathan of the same and despite all circumstances, that they should be on opposite sides of this battle. They are together. They are on the same side. This is also the last time that it's recorded that David and Jonathan see each other. So this is their last parting words. But what a wonderful legacy memory to have um, as one that was solely for the purpose of what? Strengthening your hand in the Lord. He wanted to strengthen his faith. So then after that, the Ziphites also turn David into Saul. They tell him where he's hiding in their wilderness, and they give up his location. So Saul goes out in chase of him, and he nearly catches him. So you can feel the intensity and the urgency in the text in verses 24 through 29. 
it says, They arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David, and his men went to capture him, a messenger came and said, Hurry! Come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. And for once, y'all, Saul fights the real enemy. (laughs) He goes and he leaves because in this moment of divine intervention, God has protected David from Saul's hand. He was this close, this close to catching him, but he got away. In fact, the name of that place from that time on was called the Rock of Escape because they shouldn't have made it out alive, but they did. And David went from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So this very last chapter... We end with this tale of David's patience and mercy. Saul and his men are again pursuing David, but Saul all of a sudden needs a bathroom break. I mean, y'all, the detail of the Bible. He needed to relieve himself, so he went into a cave for a bit of privacy, I guess, except it wasn't so private in the cave, was it? Saul just so happens to choose the same cave that David and his men just so happened to be hiding in. It seems like it might be a divine appointment. At least that's what David's men think. And so at their urging, David sneaks up on Saul. He cuts off a corner of his robe, but he doesn't kill him. Let's listen to his words, verses 5 through 6. This is what he said. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Who else in Israel is anointed? David is, but the priests are also anointed. And so David refuses to hurt one who has been anointed, but Saul just killed a whole city of them. He does not have the same reserve. David refuses to harm Saul because despite everything, he is still the Lord's anointed, and he knows that it's not his place to kill Saul. It's God's. So Saul leaves the cave, and David follows him out and calls to him. This is what he said in verse 8 through 15. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So this is what I mean when I say we end where we began. Because David started these chapters by telling 
Jonathan that he was innocent, saying, what have I done? I haven't done anything. And then David and Jonathan make this promise, this covenant, right? Saying, the Lord be the, our witness. If we break covenant with one another, if we don't keep our word. And so here David's doing the same thing, except this time it's to Saul. And this time, instead of just claiming that he's innocent, he's proving it. He's saying, I had a chance to kill you. See, here's the evidence, but I didn't do it. I'm innocent. The Lord be the judge between us. And so we're in exactly the same place. Not much has changed except for a lot of traveling, a lot of back and forth. And how does Saul respond? Well, he's temporarily remorseful, right? He says, verse 16, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So here we are. Saul is just as convinced as he was at the beginning that David's going to be the next king. His relenting is only temporary because it doesn't take very long before he forgets this moment and he picks up in his pursuit again. But we end here with David making a promise to Saul that he has already made to Jonathan. David has already said, I'm not going to wipe out your house. He has already promised these things. For us, where does it lead us? Well, our two questions that we're asking, what do you see God doing? And what are the people doing? Are going to help us out. So what is God doing in these chapters, these five chapters? I think next week we only have four, y'all. Woo! Maybe just a little bit less. What's God doing? First of all, I think he's protecting David, right? He's providing for David. He provides food, shelter, weapons, men to fight, answers, encouragement. He provides all sorts of things. Grace, when David makes a misstep, mercy. Um, he gives David everything that he needs. Um, we also, What else do we see God doing? That, that he keeps his word. We see him being faithful to his word, even when it's a bad word. God's word stands. It's a hard truth, but it's a truth. God's word stands. But despite that terrible word, he preserves a remnant. And the other thing that we see God doing, I think, is thwarting Saul's schemes, right? I can't say that word, thwart. He thwarts Saul repeatedly, over and over again. Saul's just about to catch him, but then he doesn't. David slips away. He gets away every time. What, is, what does God do for the people through David? He offers shelter and protection for the vulnerable, the disenfranchised. And by the way, you know, we, we talked about the motley crew that da- David assembled, but what kinds of people hung out with Jesus? The other thing that the Lord does is that he stands as judge between David and Saul. And we know how that's going to turn out in the next couple of weeks is that he brings rebellious Saul to ruin. I mean, like he is on his way down, y'all. 
I know I said it before, but it's like watching that train wreck happen. Like you see it coming and you cannot stop it. That train is moving way too fast. And it's going to be awful when it happens. And so that's happening. That's happening now. So those are the things that we see God doing. What about the people? What does Saul do? Saul's one of the people here. How does he act? Great. Yeah, Saul rebels continuously. He still refuses to submit to the Lord. He um, is selfish. He's worried about his own kingdom, himself, my reign, my rule, my reputation. Even there in the last scene, which we didn't talk about, I think there was a question about it in the homework. But it said, what is it that Saul is concerned about here? His future and what people are going to say about him. What are people going to say about me when you're King David? That's what he's worried about. Well, he should have been worried because listen to how we're talking about him tonight. Who else is in here? Jonathan. What does Jonathan do? How does he act? He's loyal. He's loyal not just to David but to the Lord, right? He recognizes that God is at work, that what is happening is God's hand at play. And rather than fighting it, he pledges his loyalty. So we've talked about the outcasts. What do they do? They flock to the true king. They fight on his side. They, they join his team. What about the other people, the other people in Israel? What do they do? They're afraid. And because they're afraid, what do they do? They make a bad choice. And they seek favor with Saul. There are so many ways, I think, that these lessons just get me. Some of them is... How do you act when you're afraid? Do you, are you faithful? Do you follow the Lord? Or do you do the stupid thing because it's, cause you're, cause, cause you just can't see how it could possibly work out any other way? Do you act in haste? Do you do things without thinking? So there's that. Um, I also think about whose kingdom I am pursuing. Whose reputation am I trying to build up? Mine? Who am I for? Who am I fighting for? And so there's all sorts of questions like that about whose kingdom I'm trying to build, whose throne I'm worshiping at. There's that. But ultimately, I think um, for us, these passages encourage us to pledge our loyalty to the one true king. Because David is anointed, but he's human. But who's the real king? God. God is king in all of this. He works through David to protect his people, to provide shelter and all those things. So pledge your loyalty to him and find your refuge and your hope in him because things will go wrong. Life will fall apart. Everything will not go exactly the way you want it to all the time. But with him, there is hope because he helps, he shelters, and he protects his people. He did it then. And nothing has changed. I'm going to pray for us. And we can head out. Father, thank you so much for your word, for your truth, for the encouragement that you give us through it. God, I thank you for showing us a glimpse of your character, for reminding us of your faithfulness, of your rule and reign over situations both good and bad, God. Lord, you're sovereign. And even the worst of situations, Lord, they are not outside your control. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, that you would give us the courage to face life's difficult situations with grace and humility, trusting you to provide all that we need. 
leaning on you to give us the help to make it through, to strengthen us when our own strength fails, Lord, and to see us through to the end. Father, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.